Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, study.com is looking for a UX designer. This position is located in Mountain View, California. And Work & Co. is looking for a senior developer in Portland, Oregon, and a senior QA analyst in Brooklyn, New York. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I want to take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Support for Revision Path also comes from Adobe Max. Adobe Max is the annual global creativity conference, and it's going online this year, October 26th through the 28th. This is sure to be a creative experience like no other. Plus, it's all free. Yep, 100% free. With over 25 hours of keynotes, luminary speakers, breakout sessions, workshops, musical performances, and even a few celebrity appearances, it's going to be one-stop shopping for your inspiration, goals, and creative tune-ups. Did I mention it's free? Explore over 300 sessions across 11 tracks, hear from amazing speakers, and learn new creative skills, all totally free and online this October. To register, head to max.adobe.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with design leader Eric Bailey, VP of Experience Design at Zillow. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Well, my name is Eric Bailey, and I'm a design lead. I lead a team of designers at a company called Zillow, and I'm also a um, graphic artist. How has the year been going for you so far? Uh, It's been going really well, not without its surprises. I think the big lesson in the last year and a half has been just be flexible, (laughs) you know, and, Mm -hmm. and and be open to change. And so I would say... That's the one thing I've really learned is just be ready to expect the unexpected, given the pandemic and given just changes in life that we, you know, we can't control. So be flexible and be ready also to take advantage of opportunities as they come up. But in general, I think 
I've me and my family, we've stayed healthy. So that's really, um, we're really thankful for that. And yeah, and just really working through the different ways now that we interact with friends and family and also the way we work has changed shape for us. And so, um, yeah, I would say uh, lots of silver linings for us. Nice. Uh, got to, yeah, I got to spend lots of time with family, really meaningful, deep time, things that we would probably n- never be able to do or have in any normal circumstances. So mm. I have no complaints. Yeah. I mean, this this past year and a half, I mean, I guess really coming up on two years now that I think about it, it has been transformative in many ways. I th- I feel like that's the most apolitical way that I can state that. <laughs> it has been very transformative. It has changed all of us in many different ways that I think we will still be unpacking, hopefully years after this time has passed. Like, there has definitely been a general shift in the collective consciousness that I don't think we're going to just like snap back from. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, it's a great way to describe it is just transformation in every sort of aspect of life. And so, um, yeah, it makes you realize that you have to be, become a, you know, a, I guess a, a being of transformation, right? You have to be able to change yourself too so that you can adapt. So yeah, adaptation has been, I think that key word for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's the only thing constant in the world. That's change. right. That's right. <laughs> Let's talk about the work that you're doing at Zillow, where you are a VP of UX. How have things been going like during the pandemic with the team? Uh, yeah, no, they've gone well. It, uh, I would say, you know, the pandemic, one, it, it you know, created a, a big threat to human beings and, and our way of life, but also to business. And so, you know, there were some real questions about how Zillow as a company or the real estate industry in general, you know, was going to fare. I think that because the company Zillow, that is, is really part of the sort of the technology frontier around real estate, automating processes, consolidating processes, you know, Zillow actually did relatively or very well during the time. And there was lots of activity, lots of engagement with the business because one, because now people are doing so much online. And then two, because they're starting to think about how the pandemic might shape where they live and how they live. And so that was a, a, a boom to the business. I would say to the design team and and I think the workforce, you know, we really took seriously the taking on remote work as the kind of de facto way we approach the our our day to day. And that that was a big shift. That was something that was, I think, we entered with real interest and did deep research with the with the workforce to get a sense of where where their sensibilities were. And the overwhelming majority felt like remote or having the at least the option to work remotely was preferred. And so we've done everything we can to really put in place processes and tools and even, you know, aspects of our culture structured around remote work and asynchronous work. And so it's been really, it's really interesting. I think great, lots of benefits, obviously, right? Like now we can um, work with folks from many markets, many regions. We have really now diverse teams when it comes to that. Obviously, people don't have to commute as much. So lots of benefits there. And, but there were some trade-offs too. What sort of trade-offs? I think having... You know, I've been at Zillow for about three years, 
and I was a part of the you know the team that was localized into a an office, and now I'm part of a team that is distributed and virtual. And so, having experienced both, I would say one huge benefit of being in a physical space with folks is really the the kinds of bonds you can build. I think that eventually we will need to, even with a remote workforce, we will need to create time together. So you know, we already will we'll be making plans for team offsites or onsites, I guess, and team meetings and really strategic moments for us to get together and collaborate. And, and that will be around, you know, problem solving, but also mostly it'll be around just building relationship and community with, with our team. So being in the same place just really does allow people to really get to know each other, I think, in a way that's it's difficult to do online. Yeah. How many people are on your team? I have about 22 people on my team. And we are focused on, I lead an exp- what we call an experience area. And that experience area is called buy, sell, and transact. And we're focused on creating end-to-end experiences that support someone's ability to buy a home from Zillow. Um, Zillow sells homes mm-hmm. to sell their home to Zillow and the transactions necessary to make that happen. So all the way through closing. And so I lead a team of product designers, essentially, that focus on that. And then I partner with research, user experience research, and content strategy. We partner to create those experiences. Nice. It's interesting, you know, the, I guess over the past maybe year or so, I've talked to other like design leads. And it's really interesting to see how content strategy has, or really content in general, written word has become more of the design process yes. to the point where they're considered designers or they sit on a design team in that way. That's right. Yeah. Well, hence the the word strategy in there, right? So not just writers, but these are folks that are that are creating strategies for basically touching, right, and create and building bridges with customers. Mm-hmm. Particularly when we're creating experiences that are either unprecedented or audience our customer base is unaware of, right? So making most people know Zillow because of your ability to dream and shop, you come and look at homes and you look at your neighbor's home and how much they pay for it and things like that. But then there are all these other services. Well, you can actually sell us your home or you can actually buy a home from us. These are things that that less of our customers are aware of. And so to really um, reach out to them and connect with them, we really need to be strategic about the way we communicate. And that's more and more of an imperative for our business. Mm. Have there been any like particular insights aside from just i think like team makeup and asynchronous work and stuff but have there, been, have there been any particular insights that have arose over the past year now that the team is distributed yeah you know i think i think well one remote work for some companies is is old hat but for zillow you know a company that's i think we're six thousand plus like a large company like ours i think we're still navigating how you build culture how you sustain culture you know, and I think the company has a really strong and rich set of cultural values, and it's very good at at sort of holding one another accountable and living up to those values. But then there's sort of the unspoken things, you know, when you it, with a virtual world, in a virtual virtual world, I think maintaining the joy <laughs> yeah. of your experiences is something that requires a real attention, you know, and real intention. And so our, you know, our design team has spent a lot of time, especially our design 
leaders have spent a lot of time really trying to be creative about, well, how do we keep our team engaged? How do we keep, you know, how do we have fun at what we do in lieu of having a space where you can, you, you know, you can improvise, right? And so we've really been experimenting and there's still lots of work to do there. But, um, you, know, you know, sometimes it's important just for us to get together and have fun. And, yeah. and it's the amount of effort and energy that actually goes into architecting those is pretty large. That's, a bit, I think, a big insight for us. Yeah, I didn't know Zilla was that big. 6,000 people? Yeah, don't quote me on the exact numbers. Yeah, we're, <laughs> you know, we're, we're yeah, in the thousands. Large. Yeah, and, that, yeah. and that's because, you know, we've, we've grown from sort of this online platform to now, you know, a broad range of services and products that we're a lender. So we, you know, offer mortgages. We have, we have rental um, experiences and services for, for landlords and for renters. So just a really now a broad range of experiences around the home. Mm. And so in that, lots of different service providers under uh, under one umbrella. I know a lot of people have been, you know, kind of moving or downsizing or just, you know, kind of changing up how they're living, you know, because of the, mm. the past, you know, yes. year and a half or so with the pandemic. Like, it's interesting, like, how has Zillow helped to facilitate that outside of, I guess, what it's for, which is, you know, real estate, buying, selling, you know, and searching. But have there been any, like, particular... I don't know. I guess I'm wondering if there are any particular ways that Zillow has helped out during this time in that process. Uh, for its employees or for just in the world? <laughs> for the world, yeah. For the world. Yeah. Oh, that's a you know, that's a great question. Yeah. Well, there's definitely this migration, right? Like there's there's, you know, the the economists talk about this migration from from urban centers and and across state lines, you know, now that folks aren't bound to a specific region or many folks now are not bound to a specific region to, you know, to make a living. There's, there's an influx of a movement of, of folks that are moving to other States. Some are moving back to the States they came from, right. They would have been centralized in, in Silicon Valley, right. And in Se- Seattle, but now you know, maybe they're going back to the Midwest or maybe they're going back South. So huge migration there that, obviously like a, an opportunity for Zillow, but also there's this kind of multi-generational trend, right? So we have now families that are thinking about, well, I should probably live closer to home or may- maybe even with my parents or even grandparents. So there's also an influx of, of folks coming together and actually buying homes or, or bringing families under one roof. So really interesting like uh, market trends. Mm-hmm. That, that are you know we have kind of internal folks that that look at this, but those those have been some of the big the big uh, macro trends that I think are really interesting. And then obviously the just the re- doing everything remote, uh, the fact that you you can now actually sell your home online, you can purchase a home completely online or or almost. I think that um, and there are a number of companies also that are springing up around this capability, but yeah, the future of buying a home and finding a home is going to change dramatically over the next five to 10 years. It could be very similar to something like, um, trading in your car, right? You, you drive into the dealership with one car, you leave with, with a loan and a new car and you're, and you've left your old car and it's, it's all just one, one stop where you were doing that. You're solving that problem for yourself and you're focused Mm -hmm. on 
that thing that you want to buy, that should be experience of buying a home and eventually it will. Wow. What does a, a typical day look like for you? Typical day. <laughs> does that well, exist? <laughs> um, no, well, yeah, right. No day is typical. It's interesting. I think for me and my team, there are a few things. One, we work really hard to try to kind of package our meeting times to a very specific time frame. So sort of between the hours of 10 and 2 or when we try to make sure that our that our hours this is where we when we have kind of like core meetings and that's in order to give one is that it's to accommodate for multiple time zones but it's also to make sure that there, the other times outside of that are considered flexible and are should be focused on getting the work done and so that's a practice that we are all trying to employ and adhere to or live up to you know on day to day there's probably you know logging in in the morning, attending some meetings, there would either be team meetings, there might be critiques for the design team. They're usually planning meetings, so meetings that are about, you know, the, the work that we're going to do in the future. And then there's usually heads down sort of working time. And yeah, I think some of the meetings, if you're getting together with a team, you might be working on a project, you might be in sort of a sprint. So you're working, you're at some point in the sprint process, like you're ideating and maybe brainstorming. And so we'll be doing some sort of uh, remote activities, collaborative exercises to arrive at some outcomes there, with, you know, with teams. It'll be multi, kind of multifunctional teams. So product managers, designers, engineers, even folks from marketing uh, and uh, obviously content and, st- and research. But yeah, that's now it's mostly, you know, online, um, whether it's collaborative or, or heads down time. I think that's how I'd sum it up. Mm. You mentioned earlier about sort of the challenge with kind of like building culture and maintaining joy. How have you been able to do that with your team specifically? I think I have two teams. I see myself as a part of a group of peers. I partner with other product managers and engineers and folks that are cross-functional. And so I do what I can to create somewhat of a culture there. And then I have my, my working team. And that my team of designers and design managers. But in terms of design and design managers, some important things are maintaining my one-on-one. So I have weekly one-on-ones with all my direct reports. I have two kind of team. They're not critiques. They're really um, focused on having the team share their work at earlier stages to get coaching. So it's less about giving direction and telling someone to you know make it blue instead of green, and more focused on changing the arc of their thinking. So pressure testing their, their strategy and the questions they're asking and the answers they're coming up with. So those, I would say, are two review meetings where leaders are giving feedback to the design team. And then there are monthly meetings. So we have a team monthly meeting and that's really been, we've opened that up as open format to make it, you know, we let folks from the team lead it. And so there'll be someone who'll volunteer and sometimes they're workshops, sometimes they're they're about learning. Sometimes they're about problem solving. Sometimes they're about bonding or connecting, but there could be a range of things. Hmm. But um, really the meeting is sort of the, is the operating system, right? Or the lever you have to, to create culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mentioned that other team and the other team is, you know, those cross-functional peers. And a lot of what I try to do there is really break the frame of our of your standard meeting format. Like I really try to make 
when I'm leading meetings, I'm trying to make them interactive and make them conversations. I really, I want them to be generative. So a, a lot of times I'm, I'm asking people to use the right side of their brains, you know, folks that aren't necessarily used to doing that. So giving them really solid like provocations and asking them to think big with real, you know, big sort of boat, like, you know, how might we statements? Yeah. And then also <laughs> done even some silly things like role play, you know, like I've, I played Lori Greiner, who's one of the sharks from Shark Tank, you know, mm-hmm. he asked cross-functional teams to create concepts. And then I played a shark and evaluated the concepts and they had to pitch those ideas to me. So even just trying to create some, bring some humor into an otherwise what can be a kind of a, <laughs> it can be kind of a, I would say less than exciting format. Yeah. From computer screen. Did you wear a, a long blonde wig too? I actually had a cut out of her face, and, <laughs> <it> <laughs> and and actually, I I actually before they came, I I got them excited about it. So I told them that, that we were going to have a guest. Actually, that Lori Lori was coming. Okay. And so you know, I'm I'm a VP. So everyone thought, wait, maybe he knows her. Maybe yeah. she's coming. Like they really got, <laughs> they got their pitches together for that, and of course, yeah, they got a big laugh when I came on with the mask. But uh, yeah. No, that's good. That's I mean, that's one of those kind of ways that you you bring joy is to kind of just shake it up a little bit, you know. Yeah, and not take yourself so seriously, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We're, we 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 can't do that. Where right? we have to have fun and and remember that you know we're human beings. And mm-hmm. so yeah. And I, I think more so than I mean, just being human beings, we're all human beings that are now going through this this shared kind of traumatic experience. And so I think any time that. When you're at work, when you can let that facade down of it being so serious and just like open up and be human. I think that's what everyone just appreciates that now more than ever, I think. That's right. Yeah. Be authentic. Your authentic self. Yeah. Now, when you initially kind of, you know, booked the interview and I, I people that have listened to the show know this, that I always kind of ask this question about like, what do you want people to kind of take away from the interview? And one of the things that you had mentioned early on was that. UX is a field with limitless possibilities. Of course, you're the AVP of UX at Zillow. Can you expand on that for me? Like, how, from your perspective, is UX a field of limitless possibilities? For those that know me, like I'm really, um, they know I'm really into self-actualization. I've really come to the realization that my purpose is to create user experiences that help people become who they hope to be. And those would be experiences that end customers or users would use, all right? So, and obvious industries are like healthcare, education. In this case, it's finding a home, right? Finding a home is both existential for people, but it's also aspirational, right? You can change the arc of someone's life, you know, finding a home. And then it's also through, like, through my teams, right? Creating experiences for them that help them become the vision of who they see in the future. And so, you know, and I developed that over the years and I can talk a little bit more about that later, but in that, so I think humans have a limitless possibility. And I think that the design field is really like a, um, is the perfect platform for that. It's a perfect sort of Petri dish to discover for at least for, for creative people to discover like who you are, who you want to be. And, and that's because of a few things. I think one, it's really, really broad. It's open to so many different kinds of talents. So I, you know, we mentioned content. So people that are writers, people that are researchers, right, that are inquisitive and empathetic, 
people that are artists, right? And people that like to make and create and people that are builders and people that are analytical, right? And so it just it's just so open to the array of skill sets that it it's a it's just a place it's so welcoming, I think, to so many folks left and right brained that I think it's it's an incredible career. It's one that, you know, I started out as a graphic designer, but UX really is this thing that is multidisciplinary and that really yeah, it's a, I think it's a really rich field. I think some of the skills that are that are really that come to mind for me are, you know, there's research, there's synthesis, there's storytelling, there's facilitation, there's interaction design, there's service design, visual design, prototyping, right? These are all things that a user experience designer might be asked to do. And that doesn't mean that you have to be an expert in all of them, but chances are you're going to bias towards one or two of those and you're going to become an expert. So just for some, for such a, you know, you can have a team that has certain expertise in any one of these dimensions or two or three, I think is incredible. And it's, you know, kind of really been interesting how really UX has exploded as a field over the past few years. Of course, you've got General Assembly and you've got other types of sort of boot camps and other programs that are really kind of cranking out UX designers into the industry at the same time as the design industry has gotten more kind of lockstep in with tech. And companies have went from being kind of just strictly visual design to now being more like product-based. And so the market has changed, and to that end, the workforce has changed to kind of go along with that. So I can see how those possibilities are really there because, you know, a UX designer can be called – Six different things for six different companies. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they could right, be right. UX, they could be product, they could be, you know, like right. you sort of mentioned before, content, things of that nature. And so it's really flexible in that way. It is. Yeah, it's incredible. And so, and like I said, it's welcoming, right? That means it welcomes folks that are the anthropologists, right? And ethnographers and, and it's just, it's incredible. It's just, an, I think, a really, just a really diverse field. I don't know of another one that is as diverse. One other thing it's really um, important to note is like um, there's real symmetry between the design process and new ways or like progressive ways of learning. So Mm -hmm. the kind of the edge the field of education right now is really embracing the design process, right? You have a question, you go out and get answers to that question. You form a hypothesis, right? You, You answer that question, you experiment with your solutions, you validate them right? And you learn from it. Like that is the basis of learning. And here is a field that you can do that every single day. Every single day you are applying progressive learning and you're following basically this process that you're continually learning throughout your life. And that's one thing that I just find really fascinating is that you, that they're really the same thing. It's incredible. Yeah. Now you've mentioned, you know, before about being a graphic designer to that end, I want to really kind of go back and learn more about your your origin story. Tell me about where you grew up. I grew up in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. All right. Yep, east side. <laughs> We've got a lot of Ohio folks, specifically Cleveland on the show. I've even got some family. They're in Cleveland. They're in Youngstown. They're like right around that area. Yeah. Yes, that's Cleveland's right. a great design city, too. I think so. Yeah, we and, and we always represent. It's a it's an incredible town. Yeah, you know, I grew up, well, I grew up drawing, so I love to draw. I love mm-hmm. comics. 
I grew up, you know, kind of creating characters and writing comic books and things like that. And, and, oh, cool. um, I was able to, I think my parents put me some classes at the art Institute, the Cleveland Institute of art. Mm-hmm. And that is where I first saw, they have an industrial design program. So it's the first time I saw these models of you know, people making these really, the, basically the cars of the future. I mean, Cleveland Institute of Art is pretty, you know, a top-notch school. It's, it's affiliated with the Cleveland Museum of Art, which is one of like just a handful of like world-renowned art museums, mm-hmm. you know, something that I was exposed to really early too. So, you know, it's a really, it's a hidden gem in yeah. the Midwest. And a yeah, lot of I- talented people come out of Cleveland. Mm-hmm. I was first there. When did I first go to Cleveland? I mean, aside from family stuff, but like as a designer, the first time I remember going was in 2014. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2014. I went, I spoke at a conference. There. Damn, that was seven years ago. Jesus. Um, <laughs> but I spoke at a, <laughs> a conference there. There's a local studio there called Go Media, and they had this event called Weapons of Mass Creation. And wow. so they would, I don't know if they still have the event. I don't, I don't think they do, but every year they would have like a number of different panels and it was like a multi-day event. They would have like live painting. They'd have break dancing. Like it was a whole, Mm -hmm. it was a whole thing. And that's how I really got introduced to kind of Cleveland as a design city. And I was like, man, this is great. This is wonderful. Mm -hmm. And and got to meet other designers from like nearby, from like Chicago and from Detroit and stuff like that. So it was great. I want to go back to Cleveland once all this pandemic madness stuff is over. But yeah, it sounds like your your parents really kind of introduced you to design and exposed you to that early on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, they knew it was ordained that I was going to do something creative. I mean, I, I, I had been drawing since I was maybe two years old. And I, I could would spend hours and fill up sketchbook after sketchbook. And, you know, that was really, I just loved to be creative. And so that, yeah, they just did what they could to kind of expose me to different things. And, and eventually... You know, that led, I checked out a, I didn't want to be a quote, quote, a starving artist. And I didn't, you know, <laughs> obviously a stereotype, but, you know, I didn't know what design was, but I applied to a graphic design program in Cincinnati when I was in, you know, coming out of high school. And that, so it's the University of Cincinnati, a graphic designer, School of Design, Architecture, Art, and Planning. Wow. And it's a mouthful. really, yeah, it is. <laughs> DAP, that's what it, yeah, the DAP is an acronym, but, um, it was an amazing program. It was, I think, like many of my experiences, it was serendipitous. Like I, I just followed a calling, but I didn't know what it was going to come, you know, turn into. And so, I was fortunate enough for it to be one. It was a five-year program, and two, it had a first year was foundation. So you spend that first year with architects and industrial designers and fashion designers, all doing the same thing, learning the same fundamentals. Mm-hmm. And then you break off into your expertise. And two, it had an, an, uh, an internship program or a co-op program that, you know, wound up being six quarters in the field. So every other quarter I would oh, work. Nice. So you wind up working a year and a half, uh, the equivalent of a year and a half before you get out of school. And so that was, in, that was an incredible experience. And, you know, and, and I'm not saying this to, to date you, but like, okay. this is, yeah, this is, me. this is, no, but I mean, like, this is in the like early nineties. This is like really prior to the advent of the personal computer and design really kind of coming into its own through, you know, things like Corel Draw and Photoshop yeah. and stuff like that. It sounds like, I mean, that sort of hybrid program 
like work plus in-class instruction was really good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would say anyone that ha- anyone think looking at design programs should choose or seri- takes very seriously programs that have in- internships, right? That it just hands down just the amount of autonomy and independence and the amount of clarity I got on like what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do was incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. and so, you know, after my first year, you know, I, the other thing is, as part of that program, you work at a, you move from city to city. So you okay. know, I worked in, yeah, I worked at the national park service working on the publications and brochures that they use in the national parks. I worked in St. Louis at a retail um, doing design for retail. I worked in Dallas, Texas, doing environmental graphics at an architectural firm. And then I worked at a small design, but kind of cutting edge design studio in Boston. So hmm. every quarter I was moving to a city, finding an apartment and either living with other students or living on my own yeah. and, and had a full-time job. I mean, it was incredible. Wow. I don't know if there's really any design programs like that now that really kind of put you out there as a working designer while you're still in school in that way. Yeah, I think there are a handful and yeah, yeah they're definitely worth you tracking down, but very much. Uh, yeah. I, Cincinnati, like, yeah, I'll hire any day, hire someone from Cincinnati as an intern or, or, or full-time. Mm. How was kind of your early career post-graduation? Cause it sounds like you've managed to gain a good bit of work experience while still being a student. Yeah. So I, I definitely didn't want to stay in Cincinnati, but I, you know, came out of came out of high school in '90. So I, and from '90 to '95 was an undergrad, and in '95, you know, when you're from Ohio, you kind of you you do a few things. You either stay in Ohio, you move to New York, Atlanta, or Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started um, applying to jobs in Atlanta and Chicago. I had some family in Chicago, and. I actually wound up attending a conference for the Organization of Black Designers. It's the mm. first one. It was held in Chicago. And that, you know, sort of through that, I wound up, I think I wound up landing some contract work in Chicago. So I went ahead and moved to Chicago. And then while in Chicago, I, I attended that at conference. And that really got me connected to a number of opportunities. But that was a really pivotal uh, moment for me. The Organization of Black Designers... Wow. Revision Path and OBD kind of have a, I don't know, I don't want to say like a history that makes it sound contentious, but like (laughs) since I've started the show and I've been talking to people, the organization has definitely come up several times. I've tried to get David to even come on the show, but we've had like other past folks that have been on the show. We did a whole oral history of OBD back in, what year was that? Was that 2018, I think, something like that. And I mean, it's just amazing hearing about how that organization came about and really how many people it helped out because yes. now it's something that I don't think a lot of black designers even know about because it's hard to really sort of pin down that history. Like it's not as storied as like AIGA or something like that. But yes. I mean, and you tell me because you were around, like was OBD for the black designer back then? For me, I mean, one, I was one. I was probably, the, I may maybe one, maybe two black students in, in my cohort, right? At least I would say I identified as black and that I was making it real clear I'm black. Like I, I kind of led with, with that, mm-hmm. but very few in the design program, right? In Cincinnati, 
very few in all the internships. I was probably the only black person in all the internships, maybe one that I interacted with in the corporate environment. And then, you know, moving to Chicago and working at these firms, just so few, seeing so few black designers. So this is the first time in my life I stood in a room and saw hundreds of black people that were creative, that were just like me, right? Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, fashion, art, graphic, industrial design, you name it, architects. To do that for the first time is transformative, right? Like you just realize you're not alone. And yeah, so I think that's what it did for me, just make me feel a sense of belonging in a way that I had never felt before. And realize even if I do go back into these other spaces and I go to my nine to five, it's this company over here where there, I'm still the only black person. I know we're out there and mm-hmm. I'm validated by that. And I know I have a lifeline to them. I can always touch base with them. And so that's really what, yeah, I mean, like uh, what a lot of what I was doing was taking the the people on that list and calling them up and saying, hey, I'm looking for work. So a lot of it was really, you know, was pre-LinkedIn, just using that network to see if you, you know, if you can make inroads and and either get a job with them or have them refer you. But right around that time, you also got involved and and helped co-create something called Project Osmosis. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, this is a part of the, you know, the oral history of OBD. I think I had the fortune of meeting some of the folks that after that initial conference in Chicago, there are designers there that kind of convened themselves on a regular basis from that point on and kind of became the Chicago chapter of OBD. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was led by Vernon Lockhart, right? You met with him before and he really helped coalesce the, the team of folks that we call ourselves OBD Chicago. And we were representing OBD and that kind of chapter. And so, yeah, I was attracted to that group. So I, you know, I joined them and, and I had other friends that joined. And so we created, you know, we got really close and really, yeah, just really bonded and try to carry on the legacy of that, of the larger org to both network, but then also to try to do some more outreach to the community um, and, and primarily to younger folks. And so that outreach was through UI, <laughs> University of Illinois, Chicago. We were doing the programs either with students there or through in local high schools, middle schools. And I, was, I also did sort of a little bit of a you know, kind of internal visioning and journeying and it kind of we together came up with this idea of more of like an outreach, like a consistent outreach to creative youth that would eventually enter the design community. And so the idea was, you know, we know that there are creative folks out there that have this innate talent and they probably don't see any pathway for themselves. Right. They don't see that there is this, there are these fields out there, this these roads to success that they could take. And using their talent, something that they they could have fun and and be enjoy every day. We wanted to expose more and more creative kids to these fields, to industrial design, fashion design, graphic architecture, et cetera. And so we decided to create a program around it. And there was this woman named Lisa Moran, Keith Purvis, Vernon Lockhart, uh, Marty Parham. There's a number of other folks. I don't want to leave them out, but we basically came up with this idea of project osmosis and that was of course you know people these kids learning from the design professionals and that was the genesis so we actually converted 
OBT Chicago into osmosis, and that was its next incarnation. We were no longer OBD. Mm. And shout out to Vernon Lockhart. I mean, he is still keeping oh Project Osmosis yes. going to this day. Yes. To this day. Shout out to yes. him. Wow. So you were working for a few different design studios back then, you know, doing a lot of graphic design work. What do you remember the most about being a working designer from that time? You know, it's funny. You mentioned the <laughs> the adoption of computers. I would say when I was in was I was in my second year in colleges when we were using kind of a Mac computers and Adobe software. So I was using those all through college and, and in my internships as well. And so, yeah, most of my work then going out, I would kind of, I think the first year or so I was doing, I was a freelancer and I would, I would use my network to see who's looking for a designer and I would join these small studios. There's a studio called Metaphor. There's a number of others I can't even remember right now, Pivot Design. And I would just go work with them for a few months and work on mostly corporate communications and things for whatever, local restaurants, whatever, doing mostly print work. But I wound up working at a small web design shop for the first time. They were working on websites. Mm-hmm. And that's when websites and you know web marketing was was just taking off. So this is 97, 1997. Yeah. And 96, 97. And yeah, that's when I started learning web design at this place called Streams Online Media. I'm no longer around, but, uh, and then I wound up working at a, joining a company called Giant Step, which was the digital arm of Leo Burnett, a larger ad agency. Okay. And so kind of made my way into web design. Yeah. It's, it's hard to, to, overstate just how much of like there was nothing back then <laughs> for design. like there were maybe a couple of books but even those felt like they were being written on the fly there was just a lot of view source and figuring it out yeah absolutely especially <laughs> when it came to digital design you know digital design it was a gamble right designers the paradigm for designers was you you become you're a graphic designer you either work at a large agency either a large like graphic design agency or you work at an advertising agency and then you eventually become a creative director, right? Mm-hmm. You're a Paul Rand was like the, the prototype for your career. Yeah. And, but I think digital really those larger agencies didn't have experience in that. So it was really the small, the small tech companies and web shops and things like that, that were really yeah. starting to hire designers and kind of do groundbreaking work because they could move faster because they were smaller yeah absolutely absolutely i remember let's see 97 97 i was in high school in 97 Mm -hmm. and i remember i got my that's when i got my first html book we had Mm -hmm. went to a was it a walden books we went to walden books in montgomery i'm from selma but montgomery's uh 50 miles away so we went to walden books and got this big HTML book. It was orange. It was like a thousand page book. And they had, I don't know, back then they had a bunch of books like this for different languages. There was like one for HTML, one for ASP, yep. what like different yep. things like that. And I remember this big, huge thousand page book. And I would carry that around with me at school. And whenever I got a chance to mm. go to the, like, we had a supercomputer lab in my high school and we had computers in the library. Whenever I had free time, I would just go in with that book and I had a tripod account 
And I would just start like trying to figure out like, like, what does the blink tag do? What does the marquee tag do? Like, like just trying to figure out how it works. Cause it's one thing to see it in the book, but then to actually like do it on the web and like see how it works in real time. Like to me, that was just such a, a transformative time yeah. in learning design. Cause really there were no rules. Like you That's really right. could do what you wanted to do. Yeah. And this is also when so many of those other roles were starting to enter the field, right? So you had, you might be a graphic designer, but who is usually doing like comps and mock-ups and, mm-hmm. you know, doing layout for, let's say, posters or books or, right, like other corporate communications. That was like, a, yeah, we'll say layout. But then there were people who were technologists, right? There are people who were anthropologists who were becoming information architects. And so, yeah, just, just, you know, sociologist and cognitive psychologist. So that now as a designer, you're starting to interact with these people. There are also people with backgrounds in motion design and film design. And so they were starting to come together in these, at these companies. And so that was really interesting was just now interfacing with such a range of creative people Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas as a graphic designer, you might interact with a photographer. Yeah. And maybe an illustrator. But yeah, really interesting. Yeah. I would say for those of us like designers that are probably like 40 and up to really see how the entire design community has changed from those early days in the 90s to now has been it's been really kind of inspiring to see just how much things have changed. Yeah, Absolutely. And I think it's why I also say that UX or user experience is such an amazing field is just because it is really on the cusp of that Moore's Law of Mm -hmm. continual transformation and and change, right? Like, it's almost as if design is becoming something new and UX is sort of, I think, on the forefront of that. So the fact that it's, yeah, it's constantly growing and changing is it's it's really exciting it it has a continual frontier right there's a continual kind of like green field in front of it yeah now even with all the the design work that you've done over the years you also have kind of your own side business side project that you do that's called propaganda how did Mm -hmm. that come about that's a great question and great timing for that question because it's sort of your what we're talking about right now. This moment for me was a time when I kind of stopped doing that kind of work. So when I was an undergrad, I kind of really short story here. When I was an undergrad, my second year in school, I did really well my first year. My second year in school, I started to get really just kind of uninspired and really had a hard time understanding how, you know, I was kind of this black kid. I'm the pretty much the only one in my program is one every year in the program really felt isolated. And how is gestalt psychology and semiotics and how are these things, well, they have anything to do with me, right? The, all these kind of Western kind of theories and things. And so I even had a professor kind of approach me and say, you know, I had a really hard end of year review and he, you know, he pulled me aside and said, you know, I you know, I look around the city, I see so many black folks, basically. And but then I look in the program, and you're really the only one, I would think that you would want to represent your essentially represent your race, right? Mm. And that would or represent your race better. And that was one, he was not black. So I had no, of course, right. yeah, that, you know that, right? that's like, pretty wild class, to say. Right? Yeah, I mean, it was like, you know, jaw dropping kind of like moment. 
for me. And from that point on, like, ooh, I was just, I was singed by that, like really burnt by that. But we had a project shortly after that where we had to take a word and manipulate it and have it mean something else, a typographic study. Something clicked at me and I, and for some reason I, I chose the word Thanksgiving and I started playing with the words, you know, playing with the letters in the word. And I kind of, you know, I started with red letters and I changed one letter to white and another letter to white and another one and then started making the red letters disappear. And it started to simulate population. I started thinking about the reds and the whites and how whites move in and reds start dying off. And at the end I added, I could just, I made one more, just added an E to both words and wound up with the word words take and give Mm. and there was white take and red give at the end so it was really just repeating the word thanksgiving and changing the color of one letter each row so the statement was obviously about colonization about gentrification well not gentrification but genocide essentially and the holocaust of you know american colonialization and that was through a typographic study and that was the first time i realized oh, I can use the tools they're teaching me to make the statements I want to make. And from that point on, it took off for me. Like I really loved visual pun. I really loved use really simple graphics to make a really hard hitting statement. Mm -hmm. And so the rest of my career there in undergrad was really making really cutting kind of really socially critical statements in my work. And that was my way of kind of pushing back on that professor and and basically on my cohort Hmm. and it was really liberating for me that's what got me excited about design was that i can use this craft to make a statement most designers you're meant to be objective you're not meant to make a statement you're meant to kind of channel right this was my ability to communicate so of course i would you know graduated i went into the workforce entered corporate america and i stopped doing that kind of work and that was around the time we talked about when i moved to chicago and started working in-house so fast forward probably 15 years, I was working at a startup and being much, you know, I was a lead, lead of design and really uninspired. I was really unhappy. You know, I was burnt out for those, those years. I knew that I was not fully self-expressed mm-hmm. and I just one night I took out some of the old pieces that I worked on. The first one I took out was Thanksgiving and I just updated it. I redesigned it, uh, refined it. And that was really me getting in touch with that, that old self through the craft of just reworking that, those pieces. And I would picked up another one and started reworking it and kind of updating it. And then from there I started making new pieces and they were all usually some critical statements and obvious like, easy target is is social media you know and that that's one that i have a love-hate relationship with so started making lots of pieces around social media and and it's an impact on us and and that was it you know i just was creating for the sake of creating and it really breathed life back into me like it was it was something that i was spending i was up until three four five o'clock in the morning multiple nights like just not being able to stop creating That was kind of the genesis and kind of coming back to that idea of propaganda. And I had given, I had come up with that nomenclature in the 90s. And so I decided to, to bring it back and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build something around this. So propaganda it was. Yeah, propaganda. I like that because, of course, like back then proper was, <laughs> was part of slang back then saying something was proper. I'm curious, have you heard of the book Visual Puns in Design? 
Eli Kintz. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, <laughs> tell me, how's that top of mind for you? Oh, I, oh God, a few years ago, I was really seeking out design books by black designers. Wow, yeah. And I got his book. I got uh, Saki Mafundiqua has a book called African Alphabets that is like super hard to find. And okay. I managed to get that. And yeah, that's how I first found out about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that, I mean, that's my jam. Like I, I love to, when someone can use the visual image to break expectation, right? Or to change perception and change meaning. I just think it's so brilliant. So yeah, he's actually a University of Cincinnati alumna. So oh, okay. He, yeah. So he went to my school, he went through my same program and he he probably had that same instructor, you know. <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's sort of a compendium of work that he collected there. And I actually reached out to him maybe a few years ago when I started, when I picked propaganda back up. I was compelled to to reach out and and try to meet him. And I think I think we chatted for a little bit through email, but but yeah, that's so interesting you bring that up because that's a really I think a great uh North Star for me. Yeah. And yeah, really impressed with his brother who who was, you know, from my neck of the woods, basically. I'm gonna try to get him on the show. I reached out to him a few years ago too, and I think we were trying to get something going and but he was busy at the time. So I'm I'm gonna try to pick that back up because that is a really good book. And for folks that are listening you may be able to find it on like eBay or Etsy because I don't even know if it's still in print, but you, I know that there are some copies of it floating yeah. around if you're trying to find it. Yes, yes. So it sounds like having propaganda as that, that kind of like side project really helped fulfill you as a creative, even as you did your, your kind of regular nine to five work. Yeah. I mean, I think it was, I became really aware that my full-time work was not enough for me to be fully self-expressed and be fully self-actualized. And so, and it was only going to be through doing that work that I would be my whole self. And so from that point, it's been a great ride. I mean, it, it's hard, you know, like I said, I was compelled to do all that work. So I created a lot of work of just, and lots of hours all, you know, I'm a full-time parent and have a and have a full-time job and and so to do this as well it was it's a commitment but yeah it's definitely it's a part of me that has to be expressed otherwise i'm not I'm, i'm not fully myself and so yeah a lot of it is really not only just i have to create like i want to have that experience of creating because as a design leader and a manager i create so little nowadays right like Mm. i create success through teams and yeah. my goal, you know, my design is really people and their careers. And so then it's like, well, but I want to, you know, I still want to make things. And so this gives me an ability to do that. I kind of call myself and this work sort of, you know, the armchair activist, like the person <laughs> who walks through life knowing that things aren't quite right, you know, yeah. or, you know, and just nah, things, you know, knowing stuff, something, knowing that, you know, it's that whole matrix, right? Like, you know, you know. That things aren't right and you're but they need that tipping point they need something to say hey look like nudge them and say you you should be questioning this phone that you're staring at for f- 10 hours a day you should be questioning the things that you're consuming right like you should just think critically about like your own behavior and how these things shape your behavior so that 
what that's based on. Mm. There's a, a designer I had on the show a few years back. His name is Andre Houston Mack. And mm. he is a designer who had some experience in the financial industry, but then later became like world-class sommelier and now mm. has his own brand of, of wines. They're called mm. Mouton Noir or, or Black Sheep Wines. Oh, and wow. uh, his design, <laughs> I don't want to say it's something similar to what you're doing, but he also kind of does these these visual pun sort mm. of designs as well. And mm-hmm. he has a design, his design studio is called the Get Fresh Crew. But fresh is spelled F R A I C H E, like creme fresh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and then crew is like C R U, as in like a vineyard, because <laughs> okay. he does the wine. And he did some, actually, for people that are listening, and for you too as well, if you all want to go to Bon Appetit's YouTube channel, I know that that has had its own kind of controversy. But if you go to Bon Appetit's YouTube channel, he's done a series of, uh, videos where he talks about wine and stuff so you can kind of get to see his personality and stuff like that but if folks want to check him out i think he's episode like i want to say like 313 or something like that andre mac uh like in it's in the 310s from what i remember i kind of tend to remember pretty well who does what when it's a weird quirk but folks want to check that episode out 313 is pretty good but yeah um, thank you for sharing that yeah so between like propaganda and, you know, the work that you do with Zillow and everything, and, and even, I guess, throughout your career, how have you worked to stay your authentic self? Well, I think propaganda is part of my authentic self, right? So even manifesting that, one, acknowledging it, hey, I need to I need to pay attention to this aspect of my personality, and two, I need to feed it, and I need to make it public and, and build it around it, like that, that acknowledging that in myself, and I think that's what I, I would... As advice I would give to everyone, right? Like listening. I do a lot of internal listening. I usually do visioning exercises at least once every two years. And that's to check in with myself on, okay, what experiences you want to be having and what skills do you want to be developing? Mm-hmm. And that, and so propaganda is a manifestation of that. It's like that happened in order for me to be whole. I think at work, a lot of it is around like working from home is was a was a milestone something i wanted to achieve and and i just had the good fortune of things making that the case like for me going into an office commuting for 3 hours a day or 4 hours a day is not sustainable even though i've done it for 15 years right mm-hmm. and so having a better integration of home and life cuz home is the authentic me so integrating that has been that puzzle pieces fall fallen into place, but that's been important. I think also you talked a little bit about the last year and the last two years and not just the pandemic, but all of this sort of, I don't call it social upheaval, but it was just like folks tired and pushing and being vocal and, and, you know, whether it's the protest or the election or whatever, but they're, you know, the real issues about equity in our in our country and race and and those issues now have have become part of the discourse in at work and or on in day to day now people are talking about things that they would rarely talk about or in spaces that they would rarely talk about and so that is really important to maintain that like now if i'm at work 
we will talk about being a black designer or a black design leader or or being a black male or a black woman, right, or a black trans person. Like all of the kind of diaspora and all of the issues that that, that go with that, and the, I'm, you know, those are now part and parcel of the things that we talk about in work in our daily lives. So being authentic to that and putting words to that is really essential. I think I spent many years kind of compartmentalizing, you know, my blackness from work. And so now, you know, that's a part of being my authentic self and bringing that authentic self to work is that we can talk about aspects of my identity. Other people can talk about aspects of their identity. And then we can talk about the things that, that go along with that. One thing is also working on things that are relevant to my own interests. So Zillow has is really pushing to create a social impact agenda hmm. and initiatives that are focused on changing paradigms in the housing industry and, and the fact that housing is kind of a key center point around inequity, especially in BIPOC communities. So being able to participate in work, right, and help steer work that's focused on creating social impact, like doing that also is a part of my full-time job. It's not just about like paying the bills, but being able to to move certain boulders that are important to me in my life, and then also being more and more myself. Those are the things I really push for, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you feel satisfied creatively these days? I do. I do. I think my biggest challenge right now is probably I want to do so much more and there's just so little time. I think um, the last year was tough because the kids were home during the day. Mm-hmm. So we, we were working and we were parenting. <laughs> and so by the end of the day, it's just like, I'm done, you know, like toast. And so there wasn't a lot of bandwidth to do other things. But I think now the only thing that limits me in terms of my my happiness with being creatively expressed is just time. Mm-hmm. But I know, you know, I know I now have the things that I know I love to do. And so, yeah, I would say the answer is yes. What do you want the next chapter of your life to be? Like, where do you see yourself like in the next few years? What kind of work do you want to be doing projects, stuff like that? I think in the future, I want to work. I want to work to live, not live to work. Mm-hmm. And so that that means that I want to work smarter, not harder. <laughs> I want to work on things that I'm really good at and do that with ease. And then I want to be able to take advantage of the benefits of my accumulated knowledge and expertise. So if I've worked for 25 plus years, I should be able to kind of take the foot off the gas. <laughs> yeah. And so to be honest with you, it's less about what new kinds of work I want to do and more about the balance I want to strike between work and and life. And I want to do less of busy work and logistics and administration and less churn and more generative and creative. And then also connecting, connecting with my, my family. Mm. And I know that doesn't directly answer your question, but it, but that's, yeah, that's the goal. Well, just to, you know, kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online? They can find me on LinkedIn. So Eric Bailey, I think you'll share some links there. I'm 
propaganda one, the number one on Instagram. And then I'm there's propaganda design at well, yeah, propagandadesign.com is the website for propaganda. And, um, yeah, and there's Zillow.com. So you can uh, obviously uh, connect with Zillow and all the all the great things we have there for folks that are looking for home, whether they're renting or buying. And let's see. Yeah, that's I think that's not a huge digital footprint, but those those are the things I keep it to. All right. Sounds good. Well, Eric Bailey, I want to thank you just so much for coming on the show. Thank you for, I mean, one, sharing your story about oh. how you really have, have kind of become a designer and, and have made your way out through in your career, but also really sharing how you've been able to kind of balance these, you know, parts of yourself, whether it's doing propaganda on the side, whether you're building your teams. It sounds like you're kind of continually striving to have that sense of balance among like the creative and the professional and the personal aspects of your life. And I think that's something that, you know, all of us listening can really, you know, learn from. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Maurice, my pleasure. Thank you. And I'm really honored. Yeah. Just to be a part of a illustrious cohort (laughs) of of interviewees. So thank you so much. Big, big thanks to Eric Bailey. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Eric and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Support for Revision Path also comes from Adobe Max. Adobe Max is the annual global creativity conference, and it's going online this year, October 26th through the 28th. This is sure to be a creative experience like no other. Plus, it's all free. Yep, 100% free. With over 25 hours of keynotes, luminary speakers, breakout sessions, workshops, musical performances, and even a few celebrity appearances, it's going to be one-stop shopping for your inspiration, goals, and creative tune-ups. Did I mention it's free? Explore over 300 sessions across 11 tracks. Hear from amazing speakers and learn new creative skills, all totally free and online this October. To register, head to max.adobe.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. What did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? Please talk to us. Reach out to us on social media. Don't be a stranger. You can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let everyone you know know about the show because it really helps us grow and reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Mm